Hi everyone, my name is Steven Wakabayashi and you're listening to Yellow Glitter, Mindfulness Through the Eyes and Soul of Queer Asian Perspectives. This episode, we're joined by an extra special guest, Mike Curado. And Mike Curado is a gay first-generation half-Filipino-Irish-American author and illustrator of books for youth. He has created many picture books for young children and has just released his debut queer young adult graphic novel, Flamer. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really glad to have you. And I was able to take a look at your book and I have so many thoughts and opinions and wanted your take on it. But first, before I started, I just want to ask, how is everything going with quarantine with everything that's happening right now <laughs> with <laughs> yeah. the world on yeah. <laughs> fire uh just fine um uh, no you know every day is uh a practice in mm-hmm. patience and um yeah i'll just say patience for now but um you know good days bad days in between days um it's just hard, right? Because every, it's just so multi-layered, everything that's happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the pandemic and politically, and um, it's just a lot. So, yeah, I'm I'm just eating a lot of ice cream. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. What flavor? Uh, what flavor am I not eating? Um, well, I think... Presently in my freezer, I have <laughs> um, mud pie, mission fig, ginger, vanilla. I think that's all that's left. <laughs> there was more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. I have been um, bulk purchasing. Trader Joe has this Thai tea mini mochi vegan ice cream. <laughs> oh, I am... I'm an old friend of the Trader Joe Mochi. <laughs> I know them well. <laughs> and so I just open up a box. I'm like, it's that type of night again. I just get a fork and just start going to town one by one by one. Wow, a fork. It's so civilized. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, I can totally feel you with just so much is happening around in the world. And my question to you is, is there anything that's helping you? just get through it uh, right now just being able to sit in a yard with my friends has been sustaining me so I'm a little nervous about the winter on its way I bought a heat lamp for my patio so I'm hoping that will I don't know buy us a little more time that we can hang out outside but we'll yeah. see once the snow comes and do you, do you recently move out of New York? I left New York um, four years ago. Oh, And I'm yeah. in Western Massachusetts now. Yeah. yeah. And how is quarantine life over there in Western Mass? Uh, actually, I think, I think compared to New York, it was a cakewalk probably. Um, there are a lot of places I can, I can go outside. So um, it, it's probably a more ideal place to be right now. Yeah, it is. It's doing much better than most of the United States. Right? Yeah. I, I'm just curious, what do you what do you miss most since COVID has happened? Um 
you know, just getting a hug, <laughs> oh, getting a hug, yeah. going dancing. Like yeah. I haven't, I mean, what even is that? Um, <laughs> what is socializing? Yeah. I, yeah. I just, it's, it's hard having the limited human interactions. So yeah, yeah it's, it is. it's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's really tough. And it's just, uh, having to do everything at home, not just work, but exercise, um, keep ourselves entertained <laughs> it just has to be this all-in-one box and it's uh yeah hopefully you have the space where you're able to nest and uh make it into something your own uh but a lot of people here in new york city they live in shoe boxes <laughs> yeah many roommates and uh a lot of people have those horror stories where they live with roommates right where they don't get along and it's just oh, a lot of empathy for a lot of people living in um these intense conditions right now with COVID 19. yeah i don't know what i would do i mean i live by myself so yeah. sometimes yeah i mean obviously that's a challenge too but then yeah. if you put that scenario in front of me like or you can live with all these people i'd be like i'll just I'll just feel lonely sometimes. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a big thing with the whole loneliness aspect with um, everyone having to put their dating on pause too, right? Where right they uh, they're trying to do these online dates on you know Tinder, <laughs> Grinder. I just yeah, dates. I just I've been on two Zoom dates so far, <laughs> oh, and I'm how was it? still trying to adjust to them. You yeah. know, like. It's just hard to, you know, it's just hard to say mm. how how it's going, you know, um, when you're not right in front of somebody. Um, but I mean, they seem cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it, it feels like there's like a business, right? Where you have to like get dressed up and you're like, okay, let me. I know I'm it's gonna... like an interview. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sit in front of my computer and we're going to have a date. <laughs> did you do, did you do like me... anything? Like. I know some people, they, they cook dinner and then they like try to facilitate the Zoom. Oh, like. God, no. I'm not going to sit there while <laughs> someone watches me like <laughs> shovel food in my mouth. Yeah. I mean, it's it's different when you're eating in person, but just I already feel on the spot. That's the weird thing, right? Because you're just constantly like looking right at each other. Whereas in person, you'd be like looking around the restaurant and I don't know, look at the menu. Going to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, 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 just taking a minute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, new new and exciting adventures in dating. <laughs> well, yeah, more power to you. And, uh, you know, one day we will look back at all of this and we will laugh and we will say, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that time when we did that. But uh, we're just we're just going to get through it together, you know? Yeah. Keep on. Or, keep or try on. at least our best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had a chance to take a look at your book. And you released it pretty recently, right? Yeah, September 1st. September 1st, yeah. And it touches on so many things. From your take, what is your synopsis of the story? What is Flamer? Oh, sure. So Flamer is the story of Aiden Navarro, who's a 14-year-old, half Filipino, half white mixed kid. It's the summer of 1995. He is about to start his first year of high school. 
but right now he's away at a scout camp where he's navigating friendships, bullying, how sometimes those two things can overlap. He's dealing with questions about his religion, um, dealing with body image issues, and dealing with racism day to day. And all that is the backdrop to Aiden confronting his sexual identity. What was your inspiration to write it? Well, when I was 14, which is the age of the protagonist in the book, Aiden, I didn't see myself. I didn't see myself in books. I didn't see myself on screen. Um, you know, I was a chubby mixed kid, you know, who was also really effeminate and really liked art. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> who was my role model? I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah. So that that's a confusing message growing up and just feeling like an outsider most of the time. And I wanted to write this book mm-hmm. for people who feel that way. Um, I mean, specifically queer youth. I think queer youth are very underserved in literature. Um, so I'm just trying to add to what I hope is a growing genre. Um, and, you know, I think we're gonna talk about it a little bit later, but there is um, suicide ideation in this book. Um, and I would like this story to be a lifeline for people who are struggling right now, who maybe haven't found their community yet. And I hope it's something that can give them a little bit of hope to hold on to. Just in the work that you've put out into the world, have you ever really touched anything this personal before? No, this one goes pretty deep. Um, you know, I, I'm very proud of the other books I've put out. And I think that there's a lot of emotion in those books. Um, but this is very personal and I feel way more exposed in this book than I do with my other work. I just wanted to get to understand you and kind of your past and your history of just growing up and what was your experience like navigating your queer identity, but also your biracial identity as well? Yeah. um, Well, I grew up outside New York City. Um, I'm first generation. My dad is from the Philippines. Um, My mom is first generation Irish. Um, And I was brought up Catholic. I went to Catholic school. And I'm trying to remember when my ethnic identity became an issue. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I remember being really little and, and knowing, yeah, I'm, I'm half Filipino. And it was just kind of this extra thing that was like a fun fact about me. I remember in, I think it was eighth grade, we did a production of Peter Pan and I was cast First of all, I tried out for for Smee, which I, I thought I would have been pretty funny. But anyway, uh, I didn't get that. Instead, I got to be one of the Lost Boys. But mm. the teachers thought it would be hilarious to cast me as one of the twins and have this other Filipino guy as my other as the other twin. Oh. And I was maybe like a foot taller than him. And they're like, it's so funny. 
I mean, oh. like we had no say, like we didn't think of this. We didn't think it was very funny, but we're like, okay. Also our class had twins, like, <laughs> and they were Filipino. I was just like, why didn't you have that? But it's fine. I mean, I'm glad that the twins actually weren't cast as the twins, but sorry, I'm getting away from myself. Um, <laughs> Typecasting. <laughs> I feel like the older I got, the more aware I became of my otherness. Was there like a specific moment when it just kind of clicked for you or when you've traveled somewhere? Just curious. Yeah. I mean, I do remember traveling south mm -hmm. as a kid and being in a multiracial family, certainly raised eyebrows wherever we went. Um, and I started noticing some trends because and you know, this is the nineties, but yeah. um, you know, we would go to a restaurant and even though, you know, like segregation isn't legal anymore, I still noticed that the white people seemed to sit on one side of the restaurant and most of the black people sat on the other. And we were always seated with the black folks, which is totally fine. And I remember even the black folks looking at us like, whoa, what's going on there? <laughs> I just feel like whenever I left the New York area, I started to feel more and more aware of people. Um, I mean, and some people would just blatantly be like, what are you? Mm, um, yeah. Not that that doesn't happen in New York also. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that may be the clincher. The thing that really brought it to my attention was this immediate need to know whenever someone would meet me because they can't immediately label me. They're like, well, what are you? You know, they're like, I don't know what to do with, with this person because I can't immediately, you know, and, and before I could even answer, people would start guessing, yes. like the yeah. guessing game. <laughs> and I don't know what's worse. I don't know what's worse when people are like, are you Japanese? And I'm like, no, I don't look Japanese at all. Or the people that are like, you're Filipino, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. And you're like, I knew it. I knew it. And it's like, you want a prize? Like, you want to make you some adobo now? Yeah. yeah, huh? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it really bothers me. It still bothers me. Um, and now I don't know. And it's now like the fact that they have to know, right? It's like, do you yeah. need to know? like, why, why in this context is why I always ask, right? right? Like, okay, we're eating food together. We're doing this we're in a classroom like does my race matter <laughs> yeah that's my new approach when someone asks me that i reply with why do you ask you know and then i and then, and then i see some people kind of be like i and then people are like oh i'm just curious i you know and, yeah, yeah, and they're yeah, just like yeah. oh that's nice <laughs> <laughs> um so, you know, mm -hmm. still trying to navigate some things, mm -hmm. yeah. but I think I've reached a place where I'm very happy with who I am. I think there were times that there was a lot of shame surrounding my otherness, all the aspects of my otherness, right? Where it's just like, oh my God, I have too many other things. <laughs> like this is too much, you know, you're, you're not, you're not straight acting. You're not, um, you're not fully white. 
you're not fully Asian. You're not, you're not this and you're not that. And, but I've come to realize that what I am is very unique. And I think uniqueness can be a good thing. So that's where I am now. Yeah. What's helped you find that path towards being and embracing yourself? I think finding community has been a big part of that. Um, a huge part of my own self-acceptance uh, happened when I, not just when I came out finally senior year of college, but I moved to Seattle after I graduated and really made my first uh, very close gay friends. Um, and they weren't just gay, but they were also Asian. They were Gaysian. And it was like huge for me to have people who knew how I felt. And, you know, and one of those friends was also was half white, half Chinese. So that would, that meant a lot to me to be able to talk about our experience together and, and just not even have to explain anything to him. Um, and we're still very, very close friends. Well, as a writer, are there any authors that have really spoken to you, especially as it comes to queer literature. Queer Asian literature is up and coming. It is up and coming. And there are uh, there are suddenly a lot of us and it's very exciting. Um, I've been on some panels with some awesome folks like um, Kiku Hughes, who wrote an illustrated displacement and Trung Nguyen, who wrote and illustrated The Magic Fish. I just love that all of a sudden there are just a bunch of us coming out of the woodwork and I'm here for it. There's there's something about it being comics that has like the queer and the Asian, like <laughs> it's like the, the perfect storm. Um, uh, but other authors, queer authors that have really inspired me. I mean, Alison Bechdel, when I read Fun Home, I was like, whoa, I was blown away. And then I started reading Dykes to Watch Out For. That was the strip. And then the book is the essential Dykes to Watch Out For. Yeah. Um, that was a huge book for me. Um, Why? Why so? Because she goes in so deep and it's very personal and it's very honest. Um, and I love an, an honest story. I think that carries way more weight. You know, I'm not necessarily saying... Um, it has to be nonfiction to be honest, but um, there has to be some essential truth woven into it, you know, that right away you understand that experience and you connect with that writer's humanity or the character's humanity. So that's certainly something that I strive for. I'm trying to think of other queer authors. This always happens, like every single time someone asks me, like, who are authors that have influenced you? It's like, um, I don't know. Going through a Rolodex in your head? You're like, yeah, what? no, there's I, there's some kind of term for this where it's like, <laughs> like yeah. I, I just go blank. Like I've never read a book before. Um, You've never read a book? I've Secret. never read a book. Is that yeah. yeah, that's twist. Um. I just arrived at this yeah. completely independently. Um. <laughs> You've never opened the book. Have you? Question. I actually recently read Ocean, Ocean Vong. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. I read his book so last good. year. It was just so, it was just the poetry, the artistry of the words are just so absolutely gorgeous. And I, I think it was a great, um, it, it captured really beautifully too kind of the struggles of being uh, American with a immigrant parent, you know? Yeah, yeah. I listened to that on audiobook, actually, which made it so much more for me. Um, hearing it in Ocean's voice. Mm. Um, oh, Ocean was a narrator. Yeah, yeah. I have to um, check that out. I yeah. love when when authors read their yeah. own work. So I, I really appreciated, especially because it was poetry, being able to hear how he wanted to say it. Um, so, and I, I actually was in Maine for listening to most of that book. And I just have these memories now of like literally climbing on rocks with the ocean crack crashing. Like, I'm like, I'm by the ocean. I'm listening to ocean. <laughs> yeah. It's all ocean all the time. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just, it was this, really sensory experience wow yeah i have to definitely check that recommendation out you can't really tell immediately it's poetry because it's just written long form like a typical mm. book right but you can definitely tell the prose is in there you just have to pick up on it and it's just um it's just very vulnerable you know and just yeah. talking about a lot of those intimate moments when we doubted ourselves we doubted our family members and I, I totally agree. It adds that human aspect that people are just hungry for. And uh, I think, you know, we could, we could see all the most beautiful, perfect things all day long, but that's Instagram, right? <laughs> yeah, but I think it's so important to see the messiness of life. And there's something beautiful about that, you know? And when things are, are too manicured, it it just feels like such a lie, you know? So I really appreciate when, when people share messy things when they're true. And that's what brings us together, right? It's the messiness that ties us mm -hmm. all together and not the perfections because those are actually, for many, rarely experienced, right? These like once in a lifetime successes or luck of the draw and... It's, it's, it's everyday stuff that we go through, the fights we have with people over the most petty and stupid things or the, um, the times when we just cried, but just like really cried about something, which just um, brings us together, not just from a mental capacity, but I think that's when our, our souls are able to connect at that deeper level. I also think there's something about the Asian first gen experience that is about perfection, right? About trying to maintain um, this veneer because you're representing your family, you're representing your heritage, you're representing all these things except yourself sometimes. Um, and that can really get wary. And I definitely played that game, you know? Was that like throughout college, after college? Um, I think 
I mean, definitely when I was in school, I was very much um, trying to be, you know, an A student all the time. I really wanted to be seen as a good person. Um, you know, both my parents were Catholic. Um, Catholicism certainly did a number on me with yeah. being good all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're bad, you're going to hell. You know, um, there's very little margin for error in in that kind of atmosphere. And I was so uh, wound up, you know, so high strung. And then, you know, things started to snap <laughs> later on. Um, and I was very depressed for a really long time. Yeah. In what way? Um, was it like relationships? Was it? Um, I mean, I didn't really have uh many romantic relationships uh, until I was older I mean I didn't even kiss another guy until I was like 23 or 24 um it was a long road (laughs) um no I would say that just trying to be everything for everyone else and not being true to myself when I was younger put a lot of stress on my mental health. And then I think I just started kind of slipping in in my my outward goodness, I guess, you know, where it's like I became short-tempered and I started sleeping a lot and which is I was just really irritable and and now looking back I understand like wow, I was so angry because I just I couldn't be myself because if I was myself, I was scared I was going to be, you know, cast away. And it's anger with the situation rather than at something. Right. And, you know, I'm sure I was like angry at myself for being different. It's like, oh my God, there's nothing I can do to just be like, I'm just never going to be a, a straight white bro. Like there's nothing I can do. Uh, doesn't matter how good my grades are. doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I also used to be really chubby, right? And so I worked really hard to try to get in shape. And it's an interesting concept too, because I think self-actualization and self-acceptance um, is an evolution, right? It's not like you have this one experience and you're like, I'm good now. We feel like it is. And then the next thing right? happens. And then and like, oh. surprise. <laughs> yeah. So my, you know, my coming out experience, like when I moved to Seattle, I thought like, okay, I finally did. I finally came out and like, now everything's going to be great. And it was like, oh, just kidding. Um, Here's because the now yeah, it's the beginning, honey. Buckle up because <laughs> now that you finally got rid of, yeah. you know, the like, homophobe crowd that you were whatever exposed to now you have to deal with your gay family and we're so awful to each other (laughs) you know like I've experienced so much love in the gay community and I've also experienced so much hate um and you know we are our own worst enemy in so many ways and I actually experienced racism on a whole new level that I didn't experience before I was out. Outward racism towards a queer Asian man, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Blatant. Mm -hmm. I would see it. um, I mean, this is dating me, but, you know, on 
on the dating websites. Like this was yeah. before the apps <laughs> existed in the before Which times. one, Adam for Adam? Oh, I was on manhunt.net. <laughs> I was on gay.com, the g.c. I was on, you know, like Match and OkCupid, but just blatantly in people's profiles. And you still see it today on Grindr and Scruff or wherever. Um, I think they're trying to police that now, which, but well, I'll get to that in a second. But, you know, it was so hurtful to just see like, not just only into white guys, but sometimes just blamely like not into Asians, not into black, not into whatever. And it's just like- oh, Fat femmes, Asians, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. incredible. So self-entitled too, they think like, well, I came out and so that's my struggle and I'm a gay man so I can say whatever I want. And it's like, wow. <laughs> um, and I, I I got into fights like on those dating sites with people. Like I, I started messaging people to give them a piece of my mind and they they didn't want to hear it, you know. I don't know if I would have gone about it differently now, but you know, I got to a breaking point where it's like, oh my God, I'm tired of reading this every day. Like I'm never gonna meet anybody. And 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 the people who think that they're not racist, right? The, the rice queens, you know, it's racism at a different level where right. it's, you know, fetishization. They'll yeah. message you all about you being Asian. And right. like, oh, yeah, Asian, you know, I love Asians. And they'll say this to you, too. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> if only I kept a record of every single, yeah. like, rice queen uh, solicitation that I've received um and i'm also gonna call out like just other asian guys that i'd be into and like they're only into white guys and it's like oh my god and even and it's like i am half white actually there's a asian lot person. of just inter inter gaijin gaijin squabbles you know yeah and yeah. uh, it's 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 very it's very vicious, and it's um it's a lot to do with internalized racism, internalized mm -hmm. homophobia. So many internalized aspects to it, uh, but it's it's it. How do you even tell someone that, right? Like you are internalizing racism, you know? Mm. And to them, they're like, oh, it's just my preference, you know. And especially for queer Asian people, right? You're already getting shat on like by multiple different degrees, <laughs> and uh, it it's um it's a it's a big big point of discussion in my work that I do, but also in the support groups that I hold where we talk about this and how for queer Asian men it's very difficult to just make another queer Asian male friend just out of the blue, and um, it's just a lot of experiences in the past or even like in the dating apps, like you said, they face the racism from other brothers that they thought were going to be friends with them. And so, yeah, it's what do what do we even do with that? <laughs> I, I wish I could give you an answer. <laughs> And it's it's definitely a work in progress too, right? Uh, we mm -hmm. we've all been there too, where we've internalized our racism, we've internalized our homophobia, uh, but we 
at least for myself, speaking for myself, is I'm just so grateful for the community that I had that really pushed me to think outside of that box. You know,、mm. I had a community that pushed me to think outside of my preference is my preference versus it's really shaped by everything that we see, we watch, we consume. And when, when, I, when I approach these situations now, I have a, a little bit more tenderness and a little bit more compassion, understanding that they too are going through a lot of the similar things. Because let's face it, right? White supremacy is vast, it's everywhere,、mm-hmm. you know.、Uh, marginalization towards Asians is everywhere, marginalization towards queer Asians are everywhere. And people are just struggling to try to find how they can resolve it, you know. And we're all human. We're all very,、um, we're all human in the aspect that we're trying so hard to solve issues we see in the world that sometimes we go about it in ways that might not be conducive to our community. It's a very tender discussion because I also work with a lot of people in the activism space who just have. You know, zero tolerance towards it, and they they shut it down immediately, and they don't want to have any discussion with it. And、um, mm. that also polarizes, right? A lot of the people who are floating in that space in the middle where they f- they don't even have words to describe their internalized racism, you know, and they immediately are turned off by these activists, and they go, Well, it's good that I what, didn't like you anyway, <laughs> you know. And they're looking for ways to validate it. And so it's, it's the pains from both sides continuously to hurt each other. And, and over the past few years, the biggest revelation that I've had is it just has to all come from love. You know, at the end, we're all, we're all struggling. We're all struggling in different degrees, you know. And, For us to try to quantify somebody else's struggles through our experiences, we're just doing the same thing that we wish weren't put upon us, you know? I think that's、um, where the power of story can really make a difference, right? If we all were able to share our story, our experiences, you know, then there's more room for. Discourse and more room for understanding and compassion and empathy. I'm hoping more people do, you know, <laughs> share their stories, not not just your pictures on Instagram, but share your story. You no, know? yeah, get real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and、um, yeah, just going back to your book and the parts where you just touched on really dark areas that just, um, Contemplations of suicide, contemplation on self harm. Where does it come from?、Uh, well, I talk about this in the afterword of the book, but when I was 14, I did experience suicide ideation.、Um, I was scared to death of going to high school. I had left、um, Catholic school, which was not the happiest experience.、Um, And all that I knew about public school was that it was a lot rougher、um, than what I was used to. You know, I'd heard stories from people about things that happened there. And I, I was just so terrified. And I just knew, I knew that I was low hanging 
fruit, um, no pun intended. Uh, I just, I just knew I was a sitting duck basically. And I think I didn't even really understand that I was gay then. I knew that people thought I was gay and I knew that I was effeminate. Um, I just didn't understand what I wanted. I, I just didn't know. And I was just more concerned about my own, I don't know, safety and, and well-being. I just, I just felt like, is this what every day is going to be like, but it's going to be worse than, than this, you know, because it's like, I'm already bullied for being who I am and not even acting on anything, just walking and talking. That's what I get harassed for. Um, and it just seemed like everything I did was wrong. Anything I, uh, thought was funny or anything that I thought was cool was like gay, 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 gay. And I was so tired, you know, because, I, you know, and then the church is, is telling me that being gay is something evil and it's against God's plan. And um, the only gay people I had to look to were, you know, men dying of AIDS on the news. Um, and I was like, is this going to be my life? Like, um, where people threaten me and maybe I'll die of a disease and then I'll go to hell. Like, um, not great prospects, right? Um, so part of me was tired. Another part of me was just scared that if I didn't do it myself, someone else would do it for me. Mm, um, yeah. I just didn't, I just didn't know what to do. And I think that's really common for um, a teenager because they haven't experienced the world outside of whatever bubble they've grown up in. Um, and I know there are exceptions, of course, but um, I feel like there are still tons of places in this country and in this world where it still feels like 1995 and um, there's no compassion for difference. So that's what the story is built around was that moment where I had to make that choice. That's the honest moment that I wanted to lead with. Um, and then I had just kind of unpacked all these other memories and feelings and experiences and figured out how to weave those into the story. But that was very much I knew that would be the um, climax of uh, the story. Sorry for the spoiler, but. <laughs> um, but it's 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 so well done, and I and you illustrated it yourself too. And your illustration gets more and more intense as you're going on this roller coaster towards the suicidal ideation we are surrounded at one point by flames all around. Everything is engulfing you. And um, is that is that what you had pictured? Yeah, I, I just uh, remember sleepless nights, you know, like laying in bed and um, going over and over and over and over 
things people had said to me, things that I was scared people would do to me. So yeah, the spread that you're referring to, Aiden is lying in bed and um, he's just very small on the page and the whole spread is just red and um, lots of scribbles of, of all these random thoughts going through his head um, surrounding his identity and, and how at odds it is with the world, it seems. Um, yeah, and I really wanted the art in this book to be kind of rough. It's kind of a departure from my usual work. Which I had a chance to take a look. It was very cute and very <laughs> bubbly. And this one was definitely very sketchy, uh, but it felt very real. It felt very authentic. Yeah, like I wanted it to be more raw to reflect the story. So it was... It was a long process to develop the style, but I'm really happy with how it came out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is the final format in the which in which way it came out with the illustrations, the story, is this how you had expected it to be when you first thought about it? Um, I knew that it would be in black and white with um, spots of color. Like I knew... Um, the bleakness of the story made sense for it to be in black and white. But then um, there's this visual thread of fire throughout the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's called Flamer. <laughs> uh, so it's very much a visual yeah. metaphor that um, gets used throughout. And I really wanted the fire to have that colorful, that, you know, that powerful burst of energy. So, um, so any instances of fire is in full color as well as um, certain inanimate objects that I want to draw the viewer's attention to, or um, sometimes the atmosphere of the page is tinted in reds and oranges. Um, and it's all used to convey emotion throughout the book. And that, you know, it, it ranges from anger to love to fear. So just these really intense moments get highlighted by the sudden bursts of color yeah yeah which is beautiful and i highly recommend everyone to go check it out and and just kind of you know wrapping the arc with the uh, just the dark period in the story where the fire comes out right this burst of flame and when it extinguished in the book just in your personal life where was that turning point for you where you realize suicide wasn't the way or that you were able to get through it because uh, to be honest, this is the reality of a lot of people mm. who don't even realize it. A lot of kids, young adults, especially in these enclosed communities where they're like the black sheep. Yeah, I mean, queer youth are at a much higher risk of suicide, self-harm, homelessness, than their straight peers. Um, if that youth is person of color and or trans, uh, the risks increase exponentially. Um, so, I mean, for, for me, I did have, have this moment um, when I was 14 and I was at a scout camp um, where I just, 
I was so tired and I just wanted everything to stop. Like I just wanted to stop. And um, I mean, really what stopped me was just thinking about my family and my best friend um, who the book is dedicated to. Oh, um, beautiful. So the book is dedicated to my friend, Laura, mm -hmm. and there's a character in the book named Violet and um, she is inspired by Lara, who was my pen pal when I was really young. Um, and sometimes you just need one really good friend, you know, and she was that friend that I could be totally honest with. And, um, you know, and, and she could be honest with me and, and we had each other and I couldn't deal with thinking about what, what killing myself would do to her um, and would do to my family. That was too much. And so I, I decided not to. And um, whenever it would kind of pop up for me, like the idea of it, I would just kind of acknowledge it and be like, yeah, but I can't do that. You know, it's just like, okay, so I've already established like not doing this. So what else can I do? Um, and I think things became a little bit easier. Um, I mean, just to give you some background, I, I went to high school. Freshman year was awful um, as I knew it would be. And sophomore year was a little less awful and junior year was a little less awful and senior year was bearable. Um, and I did make more friends um, and I still wasn't out. Um, and then, and also I, I have to say like scouting really did a lot for me. Um, as complicated an organization as it was, as it is, I made real friends uh, in that program and it gave me a lot of confidence in myself. We did a lot of different activities that uh, I was able to kind of prove something to myself that's like, I can do this. I'm a very capable person and you know, and, and I was even able to impress maybe um, some of my skeptics when I started out. Um, I think some people thought I may not last long, but then, but then I did. Um, so scouting gave me a lot of confidence and, and then going away to college was transformational, going to art school, being around, yeah, finding community. Again, there's another thing, you know, like, oh my God, I'm around all these artists. This is so cool. Like, and most of those people had similar experiences in high school, not necessarily because necessarily they were gay, because they were the weirdo, right? They were like the person who sat in the art room during lunch and, um, you know, listened to grunge music. And um, so I really connected with, with my art folks. And, and they had my back when I finally did come out. They were the first people I came out to and they were all there for me, even though none of them were, were queer. <laughs> um, so it's, it's been like this, you know, um, how should I describe it? The longer I hang out, right? The longer I remain, 
the more opportunity I create for myself to find happiness, to find acceptance, to accept myself. So that has taken me far away from, from that scary place of thinking, this is it. This is all I have to work with. And I hate it. And I hate myself. And I want to go away. I want this to be done. But now I feel more like I've learned like, okay, um, maybe I don't like what's happening with my life today. It doesn't mean it has to be this way tomorrow necessarily. So I've learned to enjoy the ride <laughs> as bumpy as it may be. So I, that's what I would say is uh, I just want to encourage people to just just hang out for a little bit and see what else is possible. Yeah, there are people who are going to love you. And out of a world of 7.7 billion people, right? <laughs> grade school is what, 100 of them? 200? <laughs> right? Grade school sucks. It's, I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated it too. I was like picked on yeah. all the time. I um, ate my lunch behind the library where there was like a little area that was just completely shaded. It was like isolated from everywhere because I just didn't feel safe. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I did the same it. thing. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, there was a stairwell. Um, <laughs> yeah, between the cafeteria and the library. And I would go eat lunch in there in like seventh, seventh and eighth grade when I just, when I was like, I can't deal with trying to find a seat today. I'm going... It's not the, the cool shadows. area near the library. It's like all the other areas are like the cool area. And just like the weirdo is just like, okay, this is safe for us. And we're just like, okay, <laughs> right. let's do attendance here. Let's make sure all of us are accounted for. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, it was really tough. And I, I also resonate with just going through grade school. I also try to commit suicide too. Uh, but uh, my friends actually turned me into the school counselor, the school therapist, mm. which I was very angry at the time, but mm. I, I appreciated it because um, in the, in the, it took me a little bit to come to, but um, I, I really understood that they were looking out for my better interest, my future. And so while it, was very hard for them at the time. They're one of my dearest friends that I absolutely love. And my question is, yeah, did, did your friend, did your family ever really know what you were going through at the time? I don't think people did, no. I don't think people really understood that it was that dark um, when I was 14 anyway. Um, when I was in college, you know, I was still battling depression, but I didn't seek counseling also until a friend intervened and was like, you're obviously at a point where you need help. And I also was very mad about it. Nobody wants to be told that they need help or, you know, of course I was like that classic, like instant, snappy biatch that was like, oh, so I'm crazy. You think I'm crazy? Um, she's like, no, I think you are sleeping all day and not eating a lot and you're not yourself and something's up, you know? And, and she was totally right. And when I did start therapy, that was, that was a turning point. 
for me because the, that therapist also was the first person I ever admitted to that I even felt like I might be gay. Even just saying that. And I remember like being hysterical and saying that and, and then just saying like, but I can't, I can't even talk about that. And she was like, okay. And, you know, we had a lot, a lot of other things to talk about. And then eventually, maybe after a year, I was like, I think I'm ready to start talking about this now. And um, yeah, that made a huge difference. It's a tough conversation to have with somebody and telling them that yeah. therapy is good. I'm just wondering yeah. what what made you seek it out? Because I think this is a story I hear very often with a lot of my friends, a lot of people I work with too, where they they want to help someone. You know, they see something is not right, something is up. And even if they recommend counseling, the people just brush it off because there's a stigma attached to it. Right. Right, where if you have therapy, it's because something is wrong with you, you know? Well, you know, all of us go through life and a lot of trauma. So, yeah, yeah, of course. But I'm just curious, uh, what resonated with you most for you to actually go and book your first appointment? Um, well, first of all, um, I'm really grateful that the school I went to had free counseling for those who needed it, who needed it to be private. Um because I was always so scared of like, oh, everyone's gonna know then. Um, I didn't want my family to know. I didn't want my friends to know, but there there was private counseling um, that I qualified for. And um, so that was one hurdle, right? Where it's like, okay, I know, okay, this one friend knows <laughs> who helped get me there. Um, but other than that, it's confidential. Um, so that was huge. And then I started to understand that it was a safe space, that the therapist was just a third party and wasn't going to judge me. And um, that's a very different experience for me because you know I, I would see the therapist as an authority figure, right? And being brought up Catholic, you know, and, you know, son of an immigrant, it's just like, you do yeah. what you're told to do. Very much you don't the Asian question. experience. Yeah. yeah. You do not question yeah. anybody. You don't, you know, you don't do this. You don't do that. And, um, and with the church, you know, it's just like, careful what you say, careful what you do. Um, and this was a place where I could say anything I wanted. There were no repercussions. And it was the first time I felt free to actually speak exactly what I was saying. Um, and that's so liberating um, and so important for everyone to be able to do that, um, to, to never actually be able, able to discuss your full opinion, you know, maybe I, I would give my limited opinion, right? Um, but I, I didn't, I wasn't worried about critique and she was just there to help. Um, and she was very sympathetic. 
and empathetic and um, and validated a lot of how I felt. Uh, so I love therapy. <laughs> I love it too. Still it's in a... <laughs> therapy, never stopping. Um, yeah. yeah. I I'm mean, so, what would the world I'm be so like if glad. we were all in therapy? What would the, it would be a different, it would be such a different place. <laughs> Donald Trump would not be a thing. Oh, <laughs> I can't even. Um, uh, but you yeah, know, yeah, it's crazy. But you know, I, I think, I think with wounds, what I always say is now the wounds have surfaced up and it's up to us to figure out what we want to do with it, you know. And it's, you know, all these people who have been racist right now, they didn't magically all of a sudden become racist. Maybe they <laughs> right. had the belief, right? They had internalized yeah. racism and they finally have a space to talk about it in the open. And it probably had no space to discuss in a healthy manner and then now it's just uh it's therapy unhinged right where it's just you do everything terrible that you want to do and we'll let you you know whereas you know if we had opened up and talked about some of these things i definitely don't think you're going to see it to the extent that it is today and um it just it just further you know i think it further just expands upon the issues that we were just so disconnected from each other we've stopped listening we just ended up deleting everyone away from our lives who didn't agree with anything that we might have had conflicts with and now we wonder you know if we can even trust polls but even our own personal poll and our friends list we've completely segregated so that we only see what we like and i think that's a very harrowing truth that just because we don't see racism in front of us doesn't mean it doesn't exist you know it is a reckoning it is a reckoning it is and it's oddly validating mm -hmm. in a way it's funny how you know i have a lot of white friends who are just mm -hmm. you know shocked and horrified mm -hmm. and i'm kind of like yeah Welcome to my um, world. <laughs> this isn't new. Um, yeah. It's not new. And also, it's not as cut and dry as mm -hmm. as people might like. You know, people love to stereotype. And people who like to think of themselves as not being racist like to play up stereotypes as well. But it's like, you don't have to go to the deep south in a red state to find someone who's racist, you know, like I live in a liberal town. Mm -hmm. I don't have to go very far to find, to encounter racism. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, it's also this misconception, right? That um, racists like capital R racists are these people, you know, that are like clan members and like their whole day is filled with meetings about how to like burn crosses and stuff. And it's like, no, actually, <laughs> um, it's just a part of our culture that we all have to deal with, right? And, and the people that benefit from it haven't done much to dismantle it because 
they're doing fine. And, and maybe that's not even something that they consciously recognized, but of course, like you're not going to actively take part in dismantling a system that you don't even realize benefits you. So that's the racism I think that people are really having a hard time coming to terms with, just owning what their complicity has been. You know, I'm trying to own, you know, my own complicity in colorism, right? You know, I definitely am a person of color and experience racism all the time, but I also kind of straddle the line in a way, right? Because I can walk through a white space with a lot more privilege than someone who's darker than me um, or less white than me. Or just even looking at your Filipino her- heritage, right? Or your skin right. color, especially in the in the Filipino space, it's extremes. You have very, very light skin folks mm. and some who are very, very dark skinned. Yeah. And they say, well, we're Filipino, we should have the same experience, but two separate worlds. Yeah, there's, there's a range. I mean, in, and in my family in the Philippines, I have a lot of family in the Philippines and, um, yeah, some of us are dark and some of us are light and they have different experiences. Um, you know, and of course it's also a class, um, a class thing there too. But I feel like if I start talking about that, it'll be like a whole other show. (laughs) This is all for it. And, you know, just to kind of circle back on this, on the aspect of mindfulness, right? What are, what are some of the ways that you have started to address it um, and what are some of the things that you recommend people to look within themselves? I think it's just time to get honest with ourselves, yeah. you know, to try to pinpoint like what parts of the system each of us benefits from. And is that a privilege? Is that something that you can get that other people can't get? And why is that? I think that's the important question. And, um, you know, you don't have to go into it with any judgment. I think it's important to just get the facts first, right? Um, And once you have the facts, you know, I mean, we've been, we've all been like saying that Maya Angelou quote, right? Like once you know better, do better. And it's just true like try to bring that into your everyday life. And it's, it's not enough to point at, I, I, I cannot stand some of the defense mechanisms, some of the BS that people have thrown out there. Like, you know, why don't you go after one of the real racists, right? Quotation marks, real racists, you know, like I, you know, and then I hear like, why here's what I've done for people of color. And here's what I do. I'm a good person. I think, uh, I think Americans in general, I think are very concerned about their personal honor, which actually sounds like a very Asian thing, but I think it's the very American thing where um, we get very offended if we think somebody thinks we're not a good person. It's like, no, no, no. I'm a good American. America is good. We have all these good things, good, good, good. And it's like, there are really great things about being American, but we can't ignore this 
history of awful things that our country has done and continues to do. We can't ignore it. We have to talk about the difficult things. So I would say, um, stop taking things so personally, right? We have to, we have to investigate the problem. Yeah. I mean, I don't have all the answers, obviously. I'm, I just, I just wish people would take some time to be introspective. You know, if you really do want to help, think about what you're doing that's not helping. Think about what things you could do, what, what is within your power that you could easily do um, to help some, help some other folks out um, and not expect any kind of reward, um, not expect anyone to say like, you're one of the good, the good people, you know, just, just do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that part with the don't take it personally, but also when, when people get very agitated, right? Because you're calling someone out, I always mm -hmm. recommend them to reflect, okay, why, why is it that you're getting agitated about this, right? For example, mm -hmm. if I say this clock is blue, you're not going to get agitated by that, right? But it was the same thing as we've called into attention, into this space, something about yourself. If you're getting really worked up and agitated, let's for a second just table the you like what you put out into the world in your actions, but just what is your reflection of yourself on the topic? Mm -hmm of racism on the topic of equity because by the fact that you're getting so angry about it means there's uncomfort that's happening and uncomfort is just to tie it back to your book it's lighting a matchstick right if there weren't any matchsticks to begin with if there wasn't gasoline to begin with it wouldn't flame up right and so uh, i think we have to do that we really need to look inwards like you said, and reflect on what are we, what, what are we taking personally? And what does that say about some of the stuff that we haven't gone through and worked through? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. I feel like I could keep talking to you. <laughs> We're like <laughs> hitting a stride. We're like, <laughs> let's go all night. Uh, I, I, I love this discussion and it just, it just opens up, you know, the box that, we don't know everything too, you know, and yeah. the sooner that we can accept that we don't know everything, the sooner that we can be more open and receptive to new ideas, new ways of ways that we can improve, you know, and even just like the whole equity aspect for at least same sex partnerships, right? This is still not pervasive around the world. You know, even look at Asia, like two countries mm. haven't legalized, you know, within the past mm. two years, you know, which is crazy. And so I, I, I think the fight, would you say, or just like the acceptance of it, we're, we're so far from getting to this place where everyone is equal rights, um, able to be who they are, do what they want to do. And so with that, I think for us who have the freedom, I think we need to do a lot of the work to be able to help our brothers, sisters, siblings from all around the world to not just be an example of how we need to be with each other, but also help guide them in what they need to be able to be doing. Mm 
to be able to help um, bring equity and not just for queer people, but also for the street people too. Yeah, it's interesting you say that just because um, I think as as oppressed as queer people are, we we also have a sort of unique privilege in kind of being forced to look at ourselves and um, really examine who we want to be and who we want to be with and what we want that to look like. Um, and I think straight people are kind of handed this roadmap and just told like, well, this is how it works. Um, and it just doesn't, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of straight folks really struggle with trying to uphold this tradition that there's, you know, they feel like they're supposed to be keeping up with and, but, you know, honestly, you know, queer people and straight people are, are more similar, really, you know, that we're just humans who just want to be with who they want to be with. And, you know, that's maybe the simple truth that I just wish could permeate. And with that, now that your book, Your Truth is Out Into the World, what do you hope it does? What do you hope it brings for young readers, young queer, or even straight readers? Yeah. I mean, I, I want queer youth to feel seen, mm-hmm. to feel validated. Like, okay, I get this kid. This kid gets me. And um, I just want them to know that they deserve to be in this world and to take up some space. And it's okay to to want that and to fight for that. And I want straight folks to read this book and hopefully gain a little empathy and some basic understanding of some day-to-day struggles. Um, I think it's important for educators to read this book because they definitely have students who are going through this. Yeah, I just, I just hope that it brings more understanding and compassion into the world. Mm. Thank you so much, Mike. I, Thanks so I, much for having me. <laughs> this is a great conversation, and I just I'm very grateful for you as a queer, but also queer Asian author putting your story out there and i i very much empathize with a lot of your experiences because i also went through so many of that and it's just so beautifully illustrated so beautifully packaged and uh it's a it's a great you know if you're an adult it's a great quick read but it's just it's beautiful and so really excited for that and for more people to experience it and question if people want to get in touch with you if they want to follow you where can they find you um i'm usually on instagram um and that's at mike underscore carado c-u-r-a-t-o and on twitter i'm at mike carado and then there's also my website mikecarado.com awesome awesome and before we wrap up, any last 
pieces of advice, last words of wisdom. Last words of advice. <laughs> um, to, I mean, this, this sounds so basic, but I really mean it. Like, just be yourself, you know, um, whether you're out or not out. Um, because here's the thing that I found about trying to live my honest life, right? Just living how I truly am, which is something I'm still figuring out is that the more I do live an honest life, the more I'm propelled towards happiness, the easier I find the people I'm supposed to be with. And um, that's what I wish for everybody. So, um, you know, if you are acting yourself and people don't like it, well, they're not the people that need to be in your life, right? Um, and so they are making it real easy for you because uh, it's just time to move along and find some better people. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. Really appreciate Thanks, you. <laughs> this was a great conversation. And hope everyone can check out your website, your social media, and your books, not just Flamer, but maybe your other books as well. It's all amazing. And uh, always support one another, especially us Asian creators and so with that thank you so much and for everyone listening really appreciate you taking the time to listen to our stories our thoughts and with that hope your day can be a little bit more mindful with all of this <laughs> bye now bye thank you